tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boostbytaxday to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Hello and welcome to this extra special edition of the Brendan O'Neill Show. This week we're celebrating the launch of Brendan's new book, A Heretic's Manifesto, with a conversation between Brendan and the great Andrew Doyle. The book is out now. It's available on Amazon UK and Amazon US. But even better, you can get yourself a signed copy by making a donation to Spiked. If you give us £50 or more, we'll send you a free signed copy in the post. Plus, while you're there, why not sign up to become a Spike supporter for no extra cost? The event you're about to enjoy was exclusive to Spike supporters, and we've got plenty of events like it coming down the pipeline. So just go to spikes-online.com forward slash donate to get your copy of the book, to make a donation to Spiked, and to become a Spike supporter while you're there. That's spikes-online.com forward slash donate. Now over to Andrew Doyle and Brendan O'Neill. My name's Andrew Doyle and I'm delighted uh, to be with you today to launch Brendan O'Neill's new book. Brendan, you all know, I'm sure, was editor of Spiked for almost 15 years and his previous collection of essays include Anti-Woke and A Duty to Offend and now this fantastic book, A Heretic's Manifesto, which I really cannot recommend enough. I think it's an excellent piece of work and it's much needed in this particularly febrile climate that we find ourselves living in at the moment. Uh, Brendan, I want to ask you so much about this book because I think you cover so many topics and you are so candid uh, in a way that you've always been. You've always been on the barricades with this one, absolutely fearless in the way that you express yourself and the points that you make. And there's a lot to get into. Um, But I think I want to start with the opening chapter because it's quite a provocative title. The title of that chapter is Her Penis. Uh, that phrase for you seems to encapsulate a lot of the problems, uh, not just linguistically, but conceptually, uh, that surround this current culture war. Do you want to talk us through that? Yeah, as soon as I knew I was going to do this book, as soon as I, uh, Tom Slater actually asked me to do a collection of essays, and I thought I would do it around the theme of heresy. And I straight away knew that the first chapter was going to be called Her Penis. I knew that the first sentence of the book was going to be, we need to talk about her penis. I had that idea from the very beginning. Um, And I ran with it. And I just thought it's such a perfect example of the slippery linguistic authoritarianism that we all live under. And most importantly, the way in which the manipulation of language Uh, can manipulate thought. So the more that people say her penis, the more they start to think that it's possible for a woman to have a penis. And the more they start to think that there's really no difference at all between men and women. So, you know, Orwell made this point many times that control of language leads to control of thought. And I just thought that two, those two words, her penis are such a good example of that. It's also very comical. It lends itself to a bit of humor. It's such a ridiculous thing to say. So I try and play around with it a bit in the first chapter as well. But uh, I just wanted to open it with something quite stark to get the reader to think, this is getting crazy. This is getting out of control. And I think nothing sums that up better than her penis. 
And as you mentioned, you give a number of examples in that chapter about the uh, the, the uh, news outlets who are routinely using this phrase. I mean, there's that one about the uh, the elderly woman who murdered other elderly women and dismembered them. And you're reading this article and you think this doesn't sound like the behavior of a woman. Uh, and then they sort of and you mentioned this, that they casually say towards the end of the article, oh, this is someone who now identifies uh, as a woman. But articles like that, we're talking mainstream outlets, the BBC, uh, even, you know, the, what you would consider the right leaning uh, papers are using this phrase, her penis, or are using they them pronouns about individual people. Is it just a case uh, that the people who control the style guides for the press have, have got all the power? Or is it that there's been a kind of collective uh, unconscious agreement that we're all going to go along with these fabrications? I think it's deeply, deeply Orwellian. And that case you mentioned in New York of the elderly woman, in quote marks, who supposedly killed and decapitated another woman, it was a very shocking example of that. Uh, uh, That was in the New York Times. It was also reported on the BBC website here. And both of them said an old woman murdered and decapitated another old woman. And you read it and you think to yourself, I'm sorry, but that just doesn't happen. You you can't remember the last time a, an 83-year-old woman murdered and decapitated someone. I, I, I'd be surprised if it, if it had happened any time recently at all. Certainly none of us can recall that kind of thing. So you read it and think this can't be right. And of course, it's not right. It's a lie dressed up as news. It is fabrication uh, dressed up as news reporting. And uh, I think it's it, it is. I know Orwellian is an overused word these days, but it is Orwellian. You know, Winston Smith's job in the Ministry of Truth, one of his jobs is to rewrite old newspaper articles so that they better accord with current party thinking. We now have that in the real world. We now have news reports being written so that they accord with the ideological outlook of the elites, the new elites, the elites that believe it is possible for a man to become a woman. And that's when you get into the realm of propaganda. This is not news at all. This is not the gathering of facts and the presentation of facts in a pithy, interesting, intriguing way. This is propaganda. This is the uh, subordination of truth to an ideological uh, crusade. And when even news reporting plays that role, that's when it gets really worrying. If there were opinion pieces in these newspapers saying men can be women and whatever, I wouldn't mind that so much, although obviously one would need to tackle it and argue back against it. But the fact that it's in news reporting on the front page of the New York Times, dressed up as a a factual account when in fact it was a lie, that tells us that we've moved into a very dangerous territory. So all of these things, I think, add up to a, a, a new form of cultural authoritarianism where the delusions of individuals carry more weight than objective fact. And I think that's an incredibly worrying situation to be in. And a defense of truth is very much in order. I suppose the uh, adherence to gender identity ideology would say, well, these newspaper uh, accounts are accurate when they talk about her penis or they use the pronouns that the, the killer in some cases would prefer because they're not talking about biological sex. When they use pronouns, they're talking about gender identity. Um, but has anyone and have any of these people actually managed to satisfactorily define what they mean by gender identity, let alone uh, to suppose that all of us should start using our language on that basis rather than the way that we used it for hundreds of years? 
Yeah, they haven't defined it satisfactorily at all. It's, uh, And I think that's one of the reasons they're so incredibly defensive. I mean, the most censorious movement of our times is arguably the trans movement. They're incredibly defensive. They're very brittle. They're hostile to any form of discussion at all. And I think that's probably because at some level they recognize that there's a house of cards element to their ideology and that under the merest amount of scrutiny, it would probably just collapse. Um, so they're incredibly hostile to any criticism or any questioning. Um, so they haven't defined what they mean by gender identity. It's entirely subjective. It's getting more subjective every day. You know, a few years ago, it would have been a man identifying as a woman. Now you can identify as neither a man nor a woman. There are apparently 72 genders. There might be more now. So it's becoming more and more subjective. It's actually eluding any form of definition. And I'm sure they would see any attempt to define gender and sex as in itself authoritarian. So they completely avoid the question of how to define these things and how to structure them in a meaningful way. But I think it's really worth thinking about the consequences of uh, such a loose idea as gender identity on real people. So to take the example of the old man who murdered an, uh, an old woman, uh, what we're doing in that situation, when we call him a woman, when we genuflect to his hallucinatory identity, which is what I think it is, his self-delusions, we're actually undermining the women who were his victims. We're depriving them of the right to tell their truth, which is that they were attacked by a man. They were brutalized by a man. And we're seeing that in courts in the UK as well, with the prospect of um, rape victims possibly having to refer to their attackers as females and to use um, the female pronoun. And the point I made in the book, which is where it does really get shocking, is that um, they rape you and then they get your pronouns. And that is the situation that we've arrived at. And, and one of the arguments I make is that political correctness, which we're so often told doesn't exist, actually now enjoys dominion over law, over reason, and over human decency itself. Because when women who've been assaulted are forced to uh, bow down to the identities of their attackers, that's a real problem. Do you worry that this is the kind of wedge issue that is going to be the beginning of a broader problem of compelled speech? I note that this week it was reported that one of the colleges at Oxford University is now saying they will expel uh, students for repeatedly dead naming or for misusing. And they actually use the phrase using the incorrect uh, pronouns, which, of course, uh, fails to take into account that the vast majority of people use pronouns to, to denote biological sex, not gender identity. That's definitely an example of compelled speech. Is this going to spread out more and more? I mean, we've seen in Canada that we people can end up in jail for this kind of thing. Yeah, compelled speech is one of the things that worries me most right now. And you know, if you look at a phrase like misgendering, it's a really funny phrase if you think about it, because it's not misgendering at all to refer to uh, a male person as he. That is the, that is correct gendering. But they invent these terms like misgendering to try and demonize the expression of truth. It's the same with dead naming. If you say that Caitlyn Jenner used to be Bruce Jenner and he was an athlete and he was a father and he fathered children, you'll be accused of dead naming. But all of those things are true. They're, they're, they're historical facts. They're on uh, the historical record. The same with Elliot Page. If you say Elliot Page used to be called Ellen Page and she was an actress, and in some of our minds, uh, she still is 
a female. She still is an actress. If you say that, you'll be branded as a dead namer, uh, someone who is saying something completely unacceptable, a blasphemy against that person's identity. And I think it's time to really turn this on its head and to say, look, misgendering is a completely nonsense idea. Preferred pronouns is a nonsense idea too, because you don't get to define your own reality. You can define yourself and your friends might agree to go along with it, but you don't get to define the reality of the world that we all live in. You don't get to say that he and she can apply to anyone as as they choose. And um, dead naming is actually just an expression of a, rec- a historically recorded fact. And so the way in which the expression of truth is being demonized as heresy, demonized as blasphemy, that's a real problem. And I actually increasingly am of the mind that misgendering and dead naming, as they're called, these are not actually terrible things to do. They are actually little acts of resistance against the new cultural authoritarianism. This is our way to tell the truth in an era in which it's become increasingly difficult to tell the truth. So I do think it's important to hold on to those facts and to not allow them to be treated as blasphemous ideas that mustn't be expressed in the public realm. You raise a number of really interesting points there, um, and I want to just explore one of them a little bit. You, 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 in your introduction to the book, you quote Robert G. Ingersoll saying, heresy is a cradle, orthodoxy a coffin. And you're talking there about almost as though uh, using the the pronouns that, that uh, connote biological sex is now a necessary act of resistance. Whereas if we went back, say, 10, 15 years ago, and we all probably knew people who who, who presented as the other sex and most of us had no problem with using the pronouns that those people requested. It was never an issue. We all went along with it. But now increasingly I'm meeting people who always used to do this, and now they won't as a matter of principle, even when it comes to friends. And it feels like, to what extent do you think, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel as though this entire identitarian gender ideology movement has really done harm to trans people. It has. I think that's absolutely right. And I was one of those people who would have used so-called preferred pronouns in the past. And I had long heated discussions with some of the women's rights campaigners who've been campaigning on this issue for quite some time, uh, particularly Kelly J. Keene and Venice Allen and a few others who said to me, every time you refer to as a a man as she, you are being complicit in the broader delusion and the and the broader idea that it is possible for someone to uh, choose their sex and to have that recognized in the public realm as if reality doesn't matter. And over time, they convinced me of, of that argument. And this doesn't mean that you have to run through the streets and go up to every trans person and say, you're a man. That would obviously be ridiculous and it would be rude. But it does mean that we shouldn't feel the need to... Uh, jettison our own beliefs, our own understanding of truth, our own understanding of biological sex, just to appease the identity of a small number of people. And that's, I think, the the situation we're now at. Uh, And you're right. The problem is that the trans lobby and their numerous allies in the political and media establishments, they really upped the ante. Uh, You know, a few years ago, most people were happy to go along with the idea that the man in a dress was a she or or whatever he wanted to be referred to as, but they upped the ante. They said, actually, we want to go into women's changing rooms. We want to go into your domestic violence shelters. We want to play in your sports. We want to punch you in the face in a boxing ring. We want to knock you to the ground in a game of rugby. And that's the point at which people said, hold on. Uh, We were willing to 
flatter your identity, but we're not willing to sacrifice truth to your delusions. And I do think that's the important point to make now. And and there is a broader issue here. This isn't just about trans people. It's not even just about the trans lobby, which is quite a noisy, annoying lobby. It's about the establishment itself and its unwillingness or inability to defend biological reality, truth, and the right of people to express themselves as they see fit. One of the things people say about political correctness, you might know this, um, Stuart Lee refers to it as institutionalized politeness. He said, how could anyone be against uh, politeness? That's all it is. But I'm I'm a big fan of politeness. I was brought up to be very polite, but politeness has never meant telling a lie. Politeness has never meant saying something that you don't think is true. And politeness has certainly never meant feeling compelled to say something that you know is untrue. So this is obviously something other than politeness. And I would say it's actually um, institutionalized conformism. It's an effort to change not only how we speak about people, but also how we think about society. And that's why I think it needs to be resisted. And it's also very interesting that those who are so adamant that we must all be polite and kind and compassionate are the opposite themselves. They're they're rarely polite. They're often Buddhist. They're often uh, aggressive and unpleasant and abusive. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC. Your book, fantastic piece of work. It goes through chapter by chapter, the various heresies of our time. And you move into the realm of witch hunting. And I actually think that that uh, when you talk about the various witch hunts that happen throughout medieval Europe, that could be applied to virtually any of the topics that you're talking about here. But you talk specifically in this chapter about climate change denialism and the debate about climate change, you neatly connecting that with the way in which a lot of the, uh, the escalation of witch hunts coincided with uh, particularly cold periods and, and what they call the little ice age that's all that's very that's very fascinating to me because it was the same thing happened in salem and you actually quote this and i i hadn't come across this before you quote this study by an academic deceitful tongues is climate change den- denial a crime and you mentioned that that is the phrase deceitful tongues is literally biblical language it comes out of the book of, of psalms uh, so what's going on here with specifically let's let's focus on climate change denialism in what sense do you see a religiosity within that? Oh, yeah, I think it's become very, very religious. And in that chapter, on uh, chapter two, on, on witch finding, um, I make the point that, as you say, lots of the witch hunts of, of the medieval era in 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, um, they were climate change witch hunts. And two interesting German historians have been drawing this link for some time, uh, Wolfgang Beyringer and Philip Blom. Philip Blom wrote a fantastic book on the Little Ice Age, which I quote quite a lot in that chapter. Um, And he makes the point that if you look at the Little Ice Age, which is the period that lasted for quite a few centuries in which Northern Europe in particular got very, very cold, crops failed, people went hungry, people starved. It was a very difficult time for humankind. And he says that the colder the weather was, the the more the crops failed, the more likely there was to be a witch hunt, the more likely there was to be a, a hysterical moment in which witches were dragged to the stake and burnt and hanged and everything. 
And if you look at the North Berwick witch trials in the UK, they were in the late 1500s, um, so about 100 years before the Salem witch trials, which are obviously better known. Um, many of those witches were accused essentially of climate change. They were accused of frustrating the journey of Anne of Denmark, who was supposed to come to Scotland to marry King James. And they were accused of causing contrary weather, stirring up winds and rain, causing cold weather and so on. So uh, the point that Wolf, Wolfgang Behringer makes is that if we discuss climate in, an, in a hyper-moralistic way, then it's likely to lead to the punishment of people for things they are not responsible for. No one is responsible for the weather and the climate. These are things that are largely beyond our control, and certainly no one intentionally controls the climate. That is a complete nonsense. So I do see a lot of the echoes of that the climate change hysteria of the Little Ice Age in the climate change hysteria of today. It does feel religious, you know, this idea that it's an end of days, the end of the world is coming, billions of people will die as a consequence of our sins of industrial hubris. We have to pay penance, we have to whip ourselves on the back and, and deprive ourselves of all the pleasures of life in order to appease nature's wrath. You know, that's essentially what people are saying. It's very reminiscent of religious stories of the past. And I do think climate change, it's a difficult issue to talk about because even people who would agree with me on the gender insanity or maybe even the way in which um, anti-racism has lost its way, many of those people would agree with the environmentalist th thesis that climate change is a real problem. But even though it's a difficult thing to talk about, it has to be talked about. And I think it has to be talked about within the realm of contemporary censorship and hysteria and the way in which people are uh, robbed of the ability to speak the truth. But I think you make a very persuasive case wherever one stands on that on that particular issue, insofar as we need to be able to talk about it. And we, we've reached a situation where on all of these issues, gender, climate change, COVID, whatever it might be, uh, certain conversations have been stifled and the Overton window has been has been narrowed. And I mean, in your when you talk about COVID, you, you talk about COVID as a metaphor, uh, this idea of a plague. Uh, and this connects with what you were saying about climate change, because in your view, you'd say that uh, humanity itself is now perceived to be some kind of plague on the planet, something that needs to be uh, wiped out or certainly mistrusted. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The thing that struck me most about the COVID era, and, um, you know, I have to make clear, just to be on the safe side, that I am not a COVID denier. I know that COVID is a real illness and that it had a devastating impact on many people's lives. I've had it three times. It's not pleasant and um, it caused great difficulties for humankind. So I know that COVID is a real thing. I'm not one of those people who thinks it's a scamdemic. And I do find those people slightly annoying. I am slight, I am also irritated by the way in which lockdown skeptics were lumped in with COVID deniers as if we were all just hysterical people. That's a frustrating uh, thing that happened in the COVID era. But what was striking to me about the COVID plague was the way in which it molded itself quite quickly around the pre-existing view that humanity is itself a bit of a plague and that the the freedom and the connections of modern society are dangerous and that people themselves are dangerous so all the ideologies of lockdown actually had been around for a long time before we'd even heard of covid-19 if you think about the ideology of the safe space the idea that it's sometimes important to hide away from other people and their toxic ideas and their dangerous speech 
Or if you think about the idea, the way in which the language of disease influences how we talk about people all the time. We talk we talk about toxic parents, toxic relationships, lies going viral, horrible ideas going viral. I'm always struck by the way in which the language of disease influences how we talk about human beings. So I think it's really important to recognize that, you know, someone can agree with lockdown or disagree with lockdown. That's a discussion we can have. But it seems indisputable to me that the pre-existing misanthropy of modern society, the pre-existing view of humankind as a bit of a toxin in itself, a bit of a dangerous a dangerous influence on the planet and a dangerous influence on other people, that really played a key role in how we came to understand COVID itself. And this is a point that Susan Sontag made in her famous book, Illness as Metaphor. She made the point that illnesses and plagues often have metaphors attached to them. They are encumbered with views that exist independent of the disease itself. Throughout history, plagues have been seen as a judgment on mankind. Syphilis was seen as a problem of democracy, you know, too many people connecting and talking and spreading sexual illnesses. And I think a similar dynamic happened with COVID, where it did come to be seen as an indictment of modern society and an indictment of human freedom. I just think it's incredibly important all the time, even when we face a real crisis, to talk about why it's been interpreted in a particular way. And unless we're free to talk about that, then we will be in a bad position. It's very interesting, isn't it, that this week uh, a report broke in The Telegraph talking about a secret government unit that was intended to monitor and did in fact monitor various journalists and other people who would uh, questioned uh, the lockdown policy, even sort of raised criticisms of that. So we would feel, and there's, of course, that's very similar to what we saw from the Twitter files in, in America. So to what extent, I mean, you mentioned democracy there, to what extent is the end point of these kind of ideas and this kind of mistrust of humanity is really uh, about the death of democracy and a horror of populism? Oh, yeah. Definitely. I mean, that was a key part of the COVID discussion as well. Just horror at populism. I mean, the Im- the amount of commentary I saw, which said that COVID is worse under populist regimes, COVID is a disease of populism. And of course, it's not a coincidence that populism had already been referred to as a disease prior to the existence of COVID-19. It was talked about as a virus in the in the body politic. So populism came to be seen as a disease in itself and one which made the COVID disease even worse than it might otherwise have been, which, by the way, is not true. The Tony Blair Foundation, of all organisations, did a really good study of populist rulers' approach to COVID-19 and found that there was not much evidence at all that they let it rip. In fact, many of them implemented very authoritarian measures. Um, But yeah, COVID was interpreted as a disease of democracy. That is essentially how it came to be seen. And there was an undertone in lots of the commentary and the analysis about the importance of restoring expertise. I remember reading a piece on the Imperial College website. Of course, Imperial College provided the government with disease modelers early on. And there was a piece on the Imperial College website very early on, I think it was March 2020, which said, experts are back with a vengeance. And it was such an interesting word, vengeance. It was like, you know, we're taking our revenge after three or four or five years of populism. All you idiots with your stupid ideas, you've had you've had your fun. And now thanks to COVID, we're back in charge because we are the only people capable of dealing with something like this. And you saw that kind of commentary all the time. And it was really about restoring the rule of 
modern philosopher kings, the kind of pre-Brexit, pre-Trump adults in the room who presumed that they were the only people sensible enough to deal with a calamity like COVID-19. So the way in which it was politicized and turned into an opportunity to restore the ancient regime, if you like, that, that made me incredibly skeptical. And it just made me think that in all these cases, whether it's a, a, a real thing like COVID-19 and climate change or a completely made up thing like gender identity, it's so important to ask questions, to question every aspect of it and to really dig down into what's being done here. And yet a lot of those uh, self-appointed philosopher kings seem to turn on each other. So you had, for instance, the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration were completely uh, hounded out of public life. Uh, Jay Bhattacharya had his Twitter account uh, restricted. We learned from the Twitter files. Uh, and those were epidemiologists. Those were top experts in their fields, but they weren't following that that particular narrative. Uh, one of the, the things you quote uh, in your chapter on COVID is an, an article from the British Medical Journal, which talked about the Great Barrington Declaration and, and talked about its authors as merchants of doubt. <laughs> and as you very clearly say, and very rightly say, doubt should be a, a virtue in scientific inquiry, shouldn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It should be a virtue in everyday life as well. Um, obviously, there's a there's a difference between scepticism and cynicism. I think we should always try to steer clear of being cynical, but we should be skeptical. We should be doubtful. We should doubt everything. You know, one of my proudest moments, I was on Australian TV once and I was introduced as the introduced as the doubting Thomas of political commentary. And I was just buzzing with pride because I just thought, uh, you know, doubting uh, and the, the image of St. Thomas refusing to believe that Christ rose from the dead until he could actually see his wounds. That's really important part of um, modern human experience. The, the right to doubt, the right to ask questions, the right to be skeptical, the right to see all the evidence. And so the way in which uh, the British Medical Journal, which is a very highly esteemed scientific journal, um, it denounced them as you, uh, the Great Barrington Declaration, as you say, as merchants of doubt. That was such a good example of how even the scientific establishment is turning against the principles of science. And the principles of science is that you should doubt everything, you should test everything, you should experiment on everything. Nothing is really settled. You know, the Royal Society, its great uh, Enlightenment era slogan was on the word of no one. That was what the scientific revolution was about. It was about questioning authority, questioning tradition, and seeking to understand the world in a rational new way. Now what we have is the deployment of science as a new form of authority. So if you question climate change, you're accused of being a science denier. If you question any aspect of the policy response to COVID, you're accused of being a COVID denier, a disease denier. So I'm, I'm very worried about the way in which um, science itself is deployed to shut down discussion, because that seems to me to be the complete opposite of what, what science should do, which is to enact as much discussion as possible for as long a period as possible. I want to ask you about this, because I wonder if this is a broader trend. It's, it's very easy for when it comes to culture war issues to sort of think in, in binary terms in terms of this side has it right, this, this side of the rational side, this side of the irrational side. What I've noticed with the COVID debates is a lot of uh, lockdown skeptics and, and, um, and some conspiracy theorists regarding the vaccine are particular, they have this sense of moral purity, a lot of them. They say, unless you believe every single conspiracy theory that I think is true, you are unclean, you need to be cast out. I've seen that kind of behavior coming from that contingent 
for simply uh, platforming Fraser Myers from Spiked, who had a debate with Andrew Bridgen. I was bombarded with these uh, people saying, if you don't believe what I believe about Bill Gates putting chips in our bodies or whatever, then you are you are not worthy of any discussion, any time. That, that strikes me as what the woke do. It, it's exactly the same. So is it the case that this, this idea of moral purity or the thinking that runs along the lines of the expectation that everyone should fall in line with your particular worldview, that that is now just a more common human trait, full stop? It's not necessarily a political uh, left or right issue. Yeah, I must say that my tolerance for um, the people you're describing there has just fallen. <laughs> you know, obviously, I completely defend their freedom of speech, but they are irrational people. I get hounded by them quite a lot as well. And they they said to me, when are you going to denounce Fraser Myers? And I said, I'm not. And they were really shocked. They were shocked that I wouldn't denounce uh, a colleague of mine. You know, that's the kind of culture that they have bought into as well, as as you say. I think what they've done is unforgivable because they have turned a really important debate, the debate about lockdown, the debate about how to respond to a public health crisis, a global public health crisis. They've t- they've completely ruined that. They've turned it into this um, feverish conspiratorial belief that the WEF and everyone else wants to inject us and control us and kill us. They think there's a genocide and all that kind of nonsense. Um, And that allows the establishment to paint anyone who criticizes any aspect of lockdown policy as just being a lunatic. So um, it's really important to, I think, distinguish ourselves from those people. But but you're right, this culture of um, intolerance and refusing to align or speak to anyone who doesn't share your views entirely, that does go beyond the woke. It does go beyond what is wrongly referred to as the left. It does express itself in in other sections of society as well. I think there's a general culture of intolerance, an unwillingness to to face up to the fact that other people think differently, and that the fact that they think differently is not only okay, it's good because it means you can have discussions, you can test your ideas out against theirs, you can maybe exercise one of the greatest liberties, which is the liberty to change your mind, to refine your thinking, to uh, shake your ideas up, make them sharper, or get rid of them entirely. This reluctance to have frank, open, rigorous discussions with other people—that is the the midwife of dogma. Because the more that you lock yourself into a safe space or lock yourself into an echo chamber, the more that you come to believe things not because you've tested them out in the public realm, but simply because you think they are right. And that's religion. That's not politics. That is. Um, uh, that is hysteria rather than principle. And so breaking out of the safe space, breaking out of the echo chamber and rigorously talking about your ideas with other people is, as John Stuart Mill said, is the only condition on which you can ever assume to be right about something. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is to do with the lack of humility and (laughs) this idea that of of reducing the world to the tribes of good versus evils. It does feel very religious, does feel almost medieval, doesn't it? I I do want to move on to your chapter on Islamo-censorship, because you open that chapter with something I hadn't heard of before, which is this concept of hijabophobia. And now I've I've heard you talk, I know there's a phobia for just about everything, and I've heard most of them, like whorephobia and vegaphobia and envyphobia, which is a a phobia of non-binary people, you know, people who are scared of uh, teenage girls with short haircuts, apparently. Um, But hijabophobia is a new thing on me. Do you want to just talk to us a bit about that? 
Yeah. I mean, so many phobias. My favorite is biphobia. I mean, the idea that there are people out there who hate bisexual people always makes me laugh. It seems so ridiculous. Uh, But yeah, hijabophobia is this, apparently it's an irrational fear or an irrational prejudice against the veil, against the hijab. And there's serious discussion about this. The Huffington Post wrote about it a few years ago. They called it um, hostility to the hijab. Uh, the European Oxford European book on Islam refers to hijabophobia as this orientalist view that um, women making women wear the hijab is a terrible, terrible thing. So when the um, street protests exploded in Iran uh, last year after that young woman was roughed up by the police and died as a consequence simply for refuse for failing to wear the hijab in the correct manner, I started to think. Um, are, are all these women, these young women and these young men, hundreds of thousands of them who took to the streets, I was thinking to myself, are they guilty of hijabophobia? Because they're hostile to the hijab. They hate the hijab. They were burning it on the streets and they were waving it around and making fun of it. So it, it really struck me that there is a there is a, a real tension between this kind of Western culture of almost pity for Muslims, a kind of ugly culture where Muslims are seen as the this special community that can, can tolerate no form of criticism about their religion or discussion about their religious practices. They have to be protected from every idea, from criticism of the hijab, from any criticism of Islamic ideology. Uh, you've got that in the West, particularly in woke circles in the West. And then meanwhile, in Iran, you have all these young people bravely taken to the streets. Hundreds upon hundreds of them were killed by the security forces because they think it should be okay to criticize the Islamist theocracy. They think it should be okay to burn the hijab and make fun of the hijab. So that tension, I think, is very, very interesting. And, And it was really striking Um, Joanna Williams made this point on Spiked uh, very early on. It was striking that there was so little knee-taking and other uh, expressions of solidarity in relation to the Iranian protesters. So if you compare it with the reaction to George Floyd's killing in 2020, um, there was a huge reaction against that. You had big corporations making solemn statements. Everyone was blacking out their Instagram pages people were taking the knee across the world because one man was killed by a cop. And obviously we all agree that was a horrific event. uh, And the cop has now been punished, which is right. Um, But in Iran, you had the security services forces killing hundreds of people, shooting them in the street, beating them to death, executing them in in jails um, because they fought for their freedom and particularly the freedom to go out in public without the hijab. And the lack of solidarity to that, I think, is a consequence of our obsession with Islamophobia. Because if you look at the definition of Islamophobia, it's the idea that if you are overly critical of Islam, if you believe that Islam is a deficient religion or has problems, if you criticize the hijab as an alien garment that women shouldn't wear, those are all expressions of Islamophobia. And what that means is it's actually impossible to express really strong, heated solidarity with the people of Iran without accidentally committing one of the speech crimes of Islamophobia. It's very, very difficult, especially for younger people who in school will have had lessons about the problem of Islamophobia and who will have seen the women's march in America 
making a woman in a hijab their symbol and who will have been told that the hijab is a wonderful, empowering garment, what are those young people going to say in response to the revolt in Iran? There's nothing they can say. They're just wordless in response to that great um, uprising for liberty. So it's a good example of how censorship rots the mind and it makes it impossible for people to think clearly about what's at stake in something like this. It's such a ridiculous term, anyway. This phobia, the one I've I've, I've liked recently, I was I was accused of ace phobia. Have you heard of this? Where you're <laughs> you're afraid of asexuals because I said I don't wow. care if you don't have, want to have sex. It doesn't interest me. And they said that that itself is ace phobic because I'm not taking really? an interest in your sex life. It's preposterous. But to come back to Islamophobia, because the reason why I have such a problem with that 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 term is, and we saw that that there was a cross party attempt at a definition by the UK government of. Is Islamophobia. And like you say, it seemed to just ally with the most ultra-conservative reactionary elements of Islam. If you criticize them, it's Islamophobic, forgetting, as you point out, there's a lot of Muslims in the world who are criticizing the precisely the same things. So in that sense, isn't that definition of Islamophobic Islamophobic? Because it just sidelines all of the people who probably need our protection the most. Yeah, I think it's important to make a distinction between Islamophobia and anti-Muslim bigotry. I think there is anti-Muslim bigotry in certain constituencies in Western society. I don't think it's a huge social problem, but I do think it exists. Just as I think there is anti-Catholic bigotry in parts of England, you know, you sometimes will meet pretty posh middle-class people uh, from certain parts of England who do think Catholics are a bit weird. So these bigotries do exist in society. There's no question about that. And But my argument would be that the uh, industry of Islamophobia, this industry that's been created around um, crushing all criticism of Islam, I think that itself is a form of anti-Muslim bigotry. Because what you're doing in that situation is you are turning Muslims into second-class citizens. You are saying that unique among the uh, populations of Britain or America, they are incapable of hearing um, difficult ideas or controversial ideas or criticism of their way of life. They, they're just not capable of hearing it. And so therefore it falls to largely white, well-educated, nice liberals to cover their ears and cover their eyes. That's racial paternalism. And uh, at the domestic level, it's pretty nasty, this idea that there is an, uh, a community that needs to be protected in this way. But at the global level, it's a problem too, because it means that Western liberals very often just turn their backs on Islamist oppression around the world because it raises the possibility that they will have to criticize Islam or certainly Islamic forms of go governance. So they're very often quiet on those forms of oppression. And I think the... Um, the, the the other consequence, which is even more sinister, and I do touch on this in in the piece on Islamo censorship, is that it, it the industry of Islamophobia gives rise to violence as well. I think censorship begets violence. We're often told that the expression of certain ideas could cause violence in society. I think censorship is always far more likely to cause violence because what you say to people when you say that it's unacceptable for them to anyone to criticize your religion, you can be taken to court in France, for example, for calling Islam a stupid religion. Michel Welbeck was taken to court, the French novelist, for calling Islam the stupidest religion. He got off, but he was taken to court. Brigitte Bardot has been taken to court in France many times because she is very anti-Islam and she says they're cruel to animals and so on. And what you do in that situation, you send a signal to young Muslims in particular 
that criticism of their religion is a punishable offense. It can be punished by be, being fined, um, by being humiliated in the in a court of law and so on. So when you have something like the Charlie Hebdo massacre, you can see that there is actually a line between mainstream French society's demonization of uh, any criticism of Islam and those two young men who were brought up in France, their belief that anyone who mocks their prophet deserves some form of punishment. Now, it just so happens they think the punishment that people deserve is much more severe. They think they should be executed. But they exist on the same spectrum. And we have a situation now in Western society, including in Britain, where people can be punished for criticizing Islam. Like the gymnast Louis Smith, who was suspended from his sport for two months because he made fun of Islam. And then he got loads of death threats. And I talk about this in the book. He got people emailing him saying, I'm going to throw acid in your face. I'm going to murder you. And we shouldn't be surprised by that because mainstream society sent the signal to young radical Muslims that his mockery of their religion was a shameful thing that he should apologize for and be punished for. So we have to be very careful when we go down this politically correct road that we don't inflame regressive and possibly even violent tendencies in certain sections of society. And this is why freedom is always preferable to censorship, because the more discussion there is, the more we can air our differences and have them out, rather than storing up all this resentment and sometimes even hatred and violence. You touch on the Salman Rushdie affair, and of course, he was horrifically attacked last year, uh, did escape with his life, but only barely. Um, you use a very chilling phrase in the book. You say, it's time to face the fact that the fatwa won. Um, now, this I mean, this raises a number of issues. You, you talk about how we in the West have internalized the fatwa, and we're sort of now censoring ourselves. We saw when the, late, the film The Lady of Heaven was on, and uh, there were gangs of um, Muslim groups outside of cinemas demanding that these be shut down. And of course, the cinema owners and managers said, yes, we won't show this blasphemous film. So on the one hand, we could say, well, by capitulating, that's anti-Muslim prejudice, because you're saying, well, Muslims will suddenly start uh, committing acts of violence. On the other hand, what happened with Salman Rushdie? What happened with Samuel Paty, Charlie Hebdo? Sometimes they do. And, and so what are people meant to do in that situation? You know, it's difficult. It's not easy. And uh, I think the only thing you can do is to carry on expressing yourself freely uh, because the alternative is doesn't even bear thinking about. Imagine if the response to the beheading of Samuel Paty, you know, when that happened, spiked, made him our hero of the year because he was willing to defend freedom in a very difficult situation and he paid for it with his life. Uh, of course, he's the guy who showed an image of Muhammad to his school kids, and then he was murdered as a consequence. Um, imagine if the response in France had been to say, well, teachers had better not talk about Islam because it's too dangerous. It would have been a disaster. You would have been um, caving in to the most violent, regressive elements in society and bolstering their authority and creating a situation where if any teacher did deviate from this unspoken rule, that they would possibly face the same consequences as Samuel Paty. I think France actually responded incredibly well to that killing, although I think they were overly authoritarian. I think they clamped down on some Islamist groups that were not violent, were just unpleasant, which I don't think is the right response. But they um, made him into a hero and they said, we defend the right of teachers to have free discussions in the classroom. That's the right response. What was shameful after the killing of Samuel Paty was the silence in the UK. 
you know, France is right next door. So our, our oldest frenemy, uh, it, you know, and this was a public servant of a na- neighboring country who was murdered in the most brutal way. There was no commentary from British politicians. There was very little commentary from British liberals. I thought that was really disgusting. And in fact, a few of us um, went to the French embassy in London to lay flowers and offer solidarity to France. Uh, but there weren't enough people there. There should have been many more. But I think, yes, it's difficult. And I understand when people say, well, if I publish an image of Muhammad, I might get attacked. If I say um, men aren't women, I might lose my job. These are very real threats that people face. And women at the moment are, are at the rough end of it. You know, it is there's a real possibility that women who express biological facts can be sacked, can be harassed, can even be attacked. So it is, that's a problem. But I think the only way to deal with it is to have more voices, more courage, more people coming together and and more solidarity. You know, there is safety in numbers. The more that uh, Kelly J. Keene's movement shows this very well, when you have 60, 70, 80 women gathering to express their beliefs, there's a safety in that. There's a comfort in that. And I think that's the only way to deal with this because the alternative, which is to say, it's become too dangerous to say these things is really would would be to give rise to a completely censorious, unfree society, which would be bad for all of us. I just want to move on to a chapter in your book, which is called Rise of the Pigs, which is a really great chapter title and a great chapter because you talk about the this. Well, you start out with this phrase gammon, uh, which has really became popular after the Brexit vote. Um, and you talk about how this is uh, you make an interesting comparison between this phrase gammon and Edmund Burke who used to go on about the swinish multitude. And you give a number of examples about how commentators throughout history tend to refer to go back to these porcine analogies for for the, the, the great unwashed and the snobbery that is within that. But isn't it odd that the snobbery of this kind has, is now coming from people who proclaim to be left wing? I mean, they fudge it. You know, Owen Jones says when he uses the word gammon, he's talking about upper middle class people. It's not convincing, is it? No, not at all. Gammon is class hatred. It is a, is an expression of class hatred. There's absolutely no question of that. Um, I know there are some people in our world who say it's a racist term because you can only be a gammon if you're a white person. I'm not really interested in that. I'm not convinced by that. I think it's a it's an expression of class hatred uh, that is used by largely middle class or upper middle class leftists and liberals against people lower down the social order, people who voted for Brexit, people who aren't particularly fond of mass immigration, people who think Jeremy Corbyn is a knobhead. You know, those kinds of people are the ones who are referred to as gammon. Uh, So we know who they're talking about. It's not a mystery. And the thing I thought was interesting and worth drawing out in in that chapter, Rise of the Pigs, is that if you look back to Edmund Burke, when he used that phrase, uh, the swinish multitude, to describe what was happening in France. I mean, firstly, Edmund Burke really recognized very well how how momentous the French Revolution was. He described it as the most extraordinary event that had ever happened in human history. And I don't think he was necessarily wrong about that. It was a, a radically transformative event in human history. But he thought it was going too far. It was too zealous. And he said that the mob, the swinish multitude, were a dangerous force and they had to be controlled and tempered by uh, educated men, basically, the nobility. 
Um, and in response to that, there were lots of radical British journalists at the time who were actually in favor of the French Revolution or who were very interested in the French Revolution. And they were under a lot of pressure in Britain at the time not to express themselves. They were very often arrested. They were thrown in the tower. They were punished in various ways for offering solidarity to the French. And a lot of them responded to Edmund Burke by publishing uh, journals. Uh, one journal was called Pig Meat. And it was the reason it was called pig meat is because it was basically them saying, yes, we're swine, whatever, give us our rights. We want democratic rights. I just think it's so fascinating that you go back to the late 1700s and the early 1800s, and you had these brilliant radical journalists in Britain uh, publishing journals called Pig's Meat to, to stand up for the rights of swine, the rights of ordinary people. And you fast forward to the 2020s and supposed leftists, the, the bourgeois left, are referring to ordinary people as pig meat. Gammon is pig. That's what it is. In fact, it's even worse than being a swine, because at least a swine is a living creature and a quite intelligent one, uh, whereas um, gammon is inanimate flesh. It's dead. It's it's lifeless. It has no culture or no uh, sensibility whatsoever. I think it's the most repugnant insult of our times. And that's saying something, because there's a lot of bad insults going around at the moment. It's class hatred. And I think the reason it's important is because it demonstrates that when the elites become fearful of democracy, as they did during the French Revolution, as they did during the populist uprising for Brexit, uh, they often fall back on these very dehumanizing terms. They often start to see the masses as animals, uh, not only uncultured, but inhuman. And the fact that that prejudice leaks out, even in the politically correct era that we live in is very revealing and it really deserves a lot more attention. I want to mention a chapter in your book, which is called The Love That Dare Not Speak Its Name. Uh, this resonates with me. Uh, this week, I published an article in The Spectator uh, about pride, uh, talking about the way in which the pride movement, in my view, has been hijacked by an anti-gay ideology. And so I see the progress pride flag as being a symbol, an anti-gay symbol, um, which is obviously something that a lot of people take issue with. But I noticed that some of the comments I got, and I know it's Twitter and there's all sorts of maniacs on Twitter, but I did have three uh, people suggesting I kill I kill myself. Uh, but two of those saying cis gays like you should kill themselves. Um, I've noticed uh, a lot of very extreme old fashioned homophobic language coming from gender ideologues. Someone had collected them all on a uh, all the screenshots on a website, which unfortunately has since disappeared. But there were thousands and thousands of these about how faggots should die, AIDS was a wonderful thing, the kind of stuff we haven't heard since the early 80s. But now it's coming, and it's not just a few idiots on Twitter, there are thousands and thousands. This is now commonplace among gender ideologues. They hate gay people. What the hell is going on? It's extraordinary. And we are witnessing a return of homophobia. There's no question about it. It's It might be dressed up in woke language, but it is still anti-gay bigotry. The reason I think it's interesting is because it does show us what can happen when we take our eye off the ball, when we don't think seriously about emergent threats and um, problematic ideologies that are creeping up, and when we just kind of give them free reign rather than criticizing, them, not suppressing them, but criticizing them, analyzing them, asking what's really going on here. What happens is that you wake up one morning and um, gay people are being called faggots again. And um, gay people are being, white gay men are being shamed as the, you know, the worst people in society. What a horrible bunch. 
uh, and you see the return of those kinds of ideas and and lesbians are having a really rough time as a consequence of this ideology you know there is now this tendency amongst trans activists to refer to lesbians who sleep with women i.e lesbians um as genital fetishists you know why won't you sleep with a woman who has a penis in other words why won't you have sex with a man and what you have there is the rehabilitation of the old homophobic idea that lesbians just need a good seeing to right you know a, a dick would sort them out that's basically what's being said again um but it's been said by blue-haired 21 year olds who think they're super right right on um i think the in that chapter the love that dare not speak its name i go back to um lord alfred douglas who wrote that poem two loves which was published in 1896 i think in a magazine called the chameleon uh, which was published at Oxford University, and that contained the line, the love that dare not speak its name. It caused an enormous scandal. That whole magazine, The Chameleon, caused an enormous scandal, um, particularly for Oscar Wilde, of course, who was Alfred Bosey's boyfriend. Um, and it was held up as evidence that these were bad people, they were wicked people. And of course, eventually we saw um, Wilde's downfall and his imprisonment and so on. What was really interesting to me is that if you look back at that period, of course, what you have is Oscar Wilde being dragged to court to explain phrases like the love that dare not speak its name, to, ex to explain what he thinks homosexuality is, to explain what his behaviour has consisted of. And then last year, here in the UK, 2022, we had Kate Harris from the LGB Alliance being dragged to court and being asked, well, what is a lesbian? Uh, can't a man be a lesbian? And Kate Harris broke down at that line of questioning and had to recompose herself and said, look, I just refuse to accept the idea that lesbians must sleep with men. So you think, we think we've become a politically correct society. We think we've progressed, but we still have a situation where homosexual people are being forced to account for themselves in a court of law. That's incredibly serious and actually quite sinister. And even worse, we now have a situation where young lesbians and young gay men, young people who would very likely grow up to be happy, healthy homosexuals, are often being submitted to corrective surgery, uh, corrective hormonal treatment. Young lesbians are having mastectomies. They're taking drugs to turn them into men. Uh, young Gay men are, are are sometimes becoming women because that's seen as a more acceptable uh, approach. And it's reminiscent of what happens in Iran. You know, Iran is second only to Thailand for the number of sex change surgeries in the world. And that's not because it's a pro-trans country. It's because it's so violently homophobic that it prefers to turn gay men into women rather than have gay men. And we're seeing something similar in the UK and in uh, other parts in the West as well. If you think back to Alan Turing, Alan Turing was famously offered a choice between going to prison for um, his indecent behavior or taking hormones, that, uh, including estrogen, um, which would have essentially been a form of castration. And he opted for the hormones. And as a consequence, his voice became more high-pitched. He developed breast tissue. Uh, he became more female, in quote marks, and he became very depressed as a consequence. We now rightly look, about, look back on that as an abomination. We put Alan Turing on the 50 pound note as an attempt to apologize for his grotesque treatment. And yet we now do the same to young gay men today. We give them drugs that make them grow breasts and which change their voices and which turn them supposedly into women. The fact that we now celebrate 
the kind of treatments that we look upon as abhorrent when they were enforced on someone like Alan Turing is a sign, I think, of how deep the rot now goes. Yeah, I mean, I've spoken to a number of gay uh, gay activists of yesteryear who are now coming out of retirement, of course. Uh, One of them said to me uh, that he thinks that today is the most dangerous time it has been to grow up gay, uh, because although when he was a kid, he would have been beaten to a pulp if he had been out, at least no adults and people in authority were trying to sterilize and medicalize him for it. So we're getting that now. But also I've noticed over the last year or so, a real rise on the reactionary right of really visceral anti-gay hatred, because they seem to blame gay people for the rise of gender ideology. And they see these sort of twerking drag queens at kids' shows, and they say, this is what happens, you see, when you allow gay people to have their rights. They can't seem to see that these very same ideologues who who they are blaming for this are just as anti-gay as they are. But it's coming from both sides. I mean, it feels like a very difficult thing to address. Yeah, I think that's right. It is coming from both sides. And I I am increasingly worried about some of the right-wing reaction to wokeness. And um, not only on the gay question, as you outlined there, but also on the women question as well. There is now this idea that... um, you know, they're very critical of the trans ideology. They would share some of our criticisms too as well. But there is this desire, I think, on the part of some of those right-wing reactionaries against wokeism to rehabilitate a very old-fashioned view of what women should be doing. They should be at home. They should have kids. They should stop working when they have kids. There are these ideas that are coming through as well, which I'm it just makes me uncomfortable because I think the progress that we've seen over the past 50, 60, 70 years in relation to women's liberation, gay liberation, uh, racial equality, all of these were wonderful gains for humanity, which transformed people's lives for the better. And I really dislike the way in which there's a kind of pincer movement against them. So on the supposedly woke left, you have the rehabilitation of homophobic thought, uh, a, a, a misogyny so profound that they think womanhood is a meaningless garb that anyone can put on and a rehabilitation of racial thinking, you know, rehabilitation of the idea that blacks and whites are different and will be forever and cannot understand each other. And you see the rehabilitation of um, backward regressive ideas on sections of the right. Women should stay at home. Maybe black people and white people won't ever get on. Uh, Gay people have ruined everything. And that's why we have drag queens twerking for three-year-old kids. So there's a kind of pincer movement against some of the great gains of the mid to late 20th century. And that worries me enormously. And in fact, that's one of the points I make in the opening of the book, which is that not only are we living through cancel culture, in fact, I make the point that cancel culture is not a good enough phrase to describe what we're currently living through. In fact, we're living through a, a reversal of some of the great progressive leaps forward, a reversal of enlightenment thinking and a reversal of uh, of freedom and choice, all of which I think are good things that it's really worth fighting for. Well, uh, Brendan, we've been talking for a little over an hour now, and uh, there are all sorts of other essays in your book which we didn't get to talk about. There's a chapter on white shame, which is about this, uh, the, uh, the, the sort of growing racial industry and the division that it's causing. Viva hate, which is a, a, a very interesting thing about, about hate speech laws. Um, you talk about um, and about how the low, a lot of the hate speech that is actually being delivered is coming from the, the people who want to police other people's hate speech. So I'm sure there's questions relating to these themes that people should feel free to ask. I'm sorry I didn't get to talk specifically about them, but we have got loads of questions coming in. So I think I should go straight to some of the questions from the people watching. We've got a question here from uh, Melanie. Melanie says, 
you've been outspoken in your criticism of Just Stop Oil protests, and particularly their drastic effects on ordinary working people going about their lives, yet you have supported rail and tube strikes. How do you distinguish between the two, given that system-wide transport strikes arguably paralyse many more ordinary people than do localised street closures? Well, I think one is a kind of aristocratic revolt against ordinary people and their rights, and the other one is a working-class demand for better paying conditions. I think they're very different things. Now, the impact might look similar in the sense that people are inconvenienced, they can't get around in the way that they might normally get around. Um, but I think the, uh, the important thing is why they're doing it. And the, the, what really irritates me about Just Stop Oil is really the reasoning behind their inconveniencing of ordinary people is because they hate them. They think they're polluters. They think they're trash. They think their lives are pointless. You know, why are you driving your four by four or your car? Why are you going to the supermarket? Why are you going on holiday? You know, they they have this extraordinary contempt for ordinary people's lives. Um, whereas I think the, the rail strikes and the tube strikes, I think, are really very clear arguments that people should be paid well for the work that they do, which I agree with. I should say that um, I don't agree with all recent strikes. And I there's something about the public sector strikes recently, especially the teachers one, that makes me a little, unco- a little uncomfortable. I haven't quite put my finger on it, but I do worry that striking has become a tool of the middle classes more than the working classes, uh, which makes me worried in the same way that protest, protest has now become a tool largely of the middle classes rather than working classes, which I think is a really interesting development. Um, But in the round, I am in favour of working class people taking independent action to make sure that they get paid well for the work that they do. I think that's a really important right. The right to strike is an important freedom. Thanks, Brennan. I'm going to go on to another question now. This one came in from Gareth. And Gareth says, can one be an effective heretic on your own? How do we resist without just being cancelled individually? Yeah, I think one a key thing in all of this is solidarity. A, a, a really important thing is finding other people who share your concerns and share your criticisms and making connections, forming networks, getting together with others. As I say, there's strength in numbers. And that's really important because you sometimes you can find yourself going mad if you're just on the internet late at night reading stuff. You you do feel like sometimes you've you're going mad and the world is completely crazy. I remember reading, I was just Googling a few years ago and I came across this thing called aerogender. Aerogender is where your gender changes depending on your surroundings. So basically, if you're a man and you go into a woman's changing room, <laughs> magically, you instantly become a woman. And I was reading this thinking, have, what is going on? What is? It was a, a bit of a turning point moment if, in terms of my whole approach to the gender question. But you do find yourself sometimes thinking that uh, it, it all feels so unreal. And there's there's a, ten, there's a temptation just to give up or block it all out, or just to get on with your life. And I fully understand that temptation, and I'm sure many people do it, and they're perfectly happy. But for people who are concerned about what's happening and who think it's worth taking a stand for the freedom and the rights and the uh, open discussion that have been hard fought for over the past few centuries, I think it's important just to find like-minded people, make connections, and take the argument to as many others as you can. 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that this week, Matthew Paris wrote an article for The Times where he effectively said all of these issues that you described, such as the culture wars and issues relating to gender and gender ideology, uh, that all of this, these discussions is just fuel for the right. It's helping the right wing. Uh, and that actually, if we, in fact, he said, if we just ignore it, it'll go away. Mm. What do you make of that? Uh, complete nonsense, complete codswallop. And um, in fact, the right is rubbish at the culture war. You know, people always say um, the Tories are obsessed with fighting the culture war. I wish it was true. They, they're they useless on these questions. You know, every now and then they'll make an interesting noise or they'll, they'll challenge a particular idea or a particular policy. But broadly, they're not very good at all. And they've capitulated on on a number of these questions um so the, I, I wouldn't rely on the right or the tories to um fight these battles i i agree in that sense that it, it, it they benefit because it can look like they're doing something but actually they're not but no the idea that it will go away if we ignore it is a fantasy this is a, a, a this is a very zealous crusade um, that is being pursued by very influential people. We're not just talking about blue-haired 21-year-olds who glue themselves to the floor of the Oxford Union. We're talking about people who run art galleries and cultural institutions and who are leaders in the media and who are the movers and shakers of, of politics and, and civil society. These are the people who fly the pride flag all the time. These are the people who wear badges saying what their pronouns are. These are the people who have no idea how disconnected they are from ordinary people's views and ordinary people's um, beliefs. And they are very influential, they're becoming more so, and challenging them in whatever way we can, I think is incredibly important. So don't let it go, we need to keep going. This question comes in from Kerry. She says, um, what drives the institutionalized conformism you refer to? Why have elites made this agenda on trans issues, climate change, COVID, et cetera, their own? What is in it for them, as it doesn't necessarily make them popular? Is it just about control and hatred of the masses populism? And on the other side, the non-elites, why the intolerance and belief in conspiracy theories? It's quite a lot, lot there. I think it's a process of... Uh, elite reorganization. It's it's the establishment, I think, reorganizing itself around a new mission because so many of their old missions have fallen apart. You know, they no longer really believe in progress. They no longer really believe in industry. They no longer believe in the bourgeois project of remaking society in their own image, that kind of, you know, the, the, the liberal explorer transforming the wilderness to make it better reflect his own beliefs and his own ideas. They don't believe in any of that 19th century stuff. They don't even have the Soviet Union anymore against which they could at least say, well, we're good and they're bad. Everything else has fallen apart. Their, their crisis of legitimacy, to use a slightly old-fashioned phrase, is very real and very tangible. And I think one of the reasons that the woke ideology has risen so much, one of the reasons they've embraced it, is because it does provide them with a shortcut to the moral high ground and a shortcut to a new sense of, of mission and a new sense of control. It's the means through which they can feel virtuous and important, particularly something like climate change, in fact, which allows these utterly boring, unimpressive people to pose as the saviors of the planet. You know, it gives them a real buzz to be able to do that. You can see the attraction of that kind of ideology to them. But it also, all of these issues allow them to exert more control over ordinary people as well. Um, and that's one of the things I draw out in, in almost every chapter in the book. I look at the way in which 
the control of language is really important in all of this because it allows them to control how people think and how we relate to each other and how we conceive of ourselves and how we conceive of society as well. So it's very um, enticing to them, I think, to believe that they are important people defending minorities, defending the planet, looking after the vulnerable and so on, but also controlling the gammon, controlling the masses, making sure that we don't have bad thoughts or or um do bad things so uh, but i think it's it's a hollow sense of moral authority it could very easily collapse and anything we can do to bring about that collapse is a good thing which i think feeds into what you say in that chapter you call viva hate where you talk about really their means of controlling people's what they call hateful speech isn't about that it's about sanctioning hate that's the argument you make that actually a lot of their movement a lot of the movement appears to be driven by a form of hatred. Oh, absolutely. And in that chapter, I talk about the paradox of hate. And, and, and the paradox of hate is that we live in societies that are obsessed with policing hatred and extinguishing hate speech. And yet our societies feel increasingly hateful. If you look at the university campus, for example, there are speech code after speech code forbidding hateful ideas, hateful speech, and so on. And yet if, it, if an Israeli person turns up or Kathleen Stock turns up or you or me turn up, uh, the hatred is electric. They fume, they spout the most obnoxious terms, they go red in the face. It's like, uh, you know, the two minutes hate from 1984. So that's the paradox of hate, that we live in societies that are obsessed with extinguishing hatred, but uh, hatred is the lingua franca of so much modern discussion. And I think, as you say, that's because Actually, the empire of anti-hate censorship is not about getting rid of hatred. It's about sanctioning hatred. It gives you a license to loathe people. Because if you hang a a sign around uh, J.K. Rowling's neck saying, this is a hateful person, you invite everyone to abuse her and harass her and issue her with death threats. If you hang a sign around the neck of um, uh, Black members of the Tory party and say that they are coconuts, they are traitors to their race, uh, they are hateful people. You invite people to abuse them and harass them. So I'm very interested in the way in which anti-hatred actually sanctions new forms of hatred, which is why I think we live in a very febrile time in which it's difficult to have reasoned discussions. I've got a question here, Brendan, from Carrie. Uh, and Carrie says, is a lot of this down to us aping America? I think some of it is, yes. I think America is incredibly influential in all of this. And um, I wouldn't want to say that America controls everything because that lets Britain off the hook and it lets our own establishments off the hook. But it does seem that a lot of this stuff is downstream of what happens in American society. It tends to happen there first, then it comes to Britain, then it kind of goes to Europe, but you know, some French intellectuals won't have anything to do with it. And uh, you know, sensible people in Scandinavia will just say that's bollocks. So it kind of it, it comes a cropper in certain parts of Europe. But yeah, I think America is influential. I thought the best example of that, I think, was Black Lives Matter, uh, especially in 2020. I thought the way in which it became this culturally imperialist movement, this juggernaut that spread around the world. So you had a situation where Belgian people were protesting in the streets against a statue of King Leopold, for example, um, under the banner of Black Lives Matter. You had Aboriginal people in Australia adopting the term Black Lives Matter. 
It was like, and this was a movement pr promoted by American capitalists, promoted by the American elites, promoted by the democratic establishment. It was really a form of soft power, American power, uh, in an extraordinary way. I thought Black Lives Matter was a, a far more uh, successful example of American neocolonialism than anything they've done in Iraq or Afghanistan, which were complete disasters. So yes, America's cultural power is extraordinary. I do think it's something worth resisting without, of course, becoming anti-American, um, because our own establishments, our own countries bear a lot of responsibility for these ideas as well. And just quickly, a quick question of my own regarding the last chapter of your book, which is called Words Wound. Uh, I mean, I've spent a lot of time trying to remind people that words and violence are not the same thing. And actually, the conflation of these two things is rather dangerous. Um, but you make a very interesting argument in this chapter about how actually, yes, words are harmful. And and really, as free speech advocates, uh, we should be embracing that and, 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 and saying, yes, words can be harmful, but that's why they're important. Do you want to just Quickly elaborate on that a bit. Yeah, so I think it's uh, it's it's actually time to say that words do wound. They they do cause pain and upset, and in fact, they do much more than that. Sometimes they uh, help to overthrow entire social systems. You know, every revolution in history begins with words, begins with ideas, begins with the dissemination of information. Uh, so words do have an extraordinary power, and I, sometimes I worry that free speech activists, and I've done this myself a few times. We say, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Um, it's true that words are not violence. That's such an important argument to make. And it's true that words are not sticks and stones, but words do hurt people. And sometimes they're intended to, in fact. And the the person who I was thinking about in relation to this, and I talk about in that chapter, is William Tyndale. William Tyndale is one of the most heroic people in English history. He was the an early Protestant reformer, he was the man in the early 1500s who was determined to translate the Bible into English. It had never been published in English. It was forbidden to do so. It was only in Latin so that intelligent elites could read it and read it to the sheep in church and tell them what to think. And he was determined that it should be published in English. So he had to go to Germany to do this. You couldn't do it in, in Britain. He was hunted like an outlaw. He was moving around Germany all the time. He was working in secret. He was publishing these Bibles and spiriting them back into the UK where people would distribute them amongst his um, supporters. People had to read them by candlelight and get ready to throw them away if anyone was knocking at the door. I mean, an extraordinary state of affairs. And he, uh, William Tintel, in, invented the English language pocket Bible, something that we all now take for granted. And for doing that, he was eventually caught, he was strangled to death, and he was burnt in public. It's it's a it's a really important reminder, I think, that things we take for granted now, like being able to read the Bible, were extraordinary heresies in the past. They were things that you could be literally killed for doing, and it's just worth remembering uh, the 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 fact that every freedom and comfort we enjoy is a consequence of heresy. It's a consequence of someone daring to put their head above the parapet and say, maybe we should be free to read the Bible. Maybe um, we should be free to say that the earth is not at the center of the universe. Maybe women should have the right to vote. Maybe men should be free to have relationships with each other without being sent to prison. All of those things were unspeakable heresies that you could be punished for saying not that long ago. And yet people said them and our lives are better as a consequence. So 
heresy is important. Heresy is the midwife of progress. And it's important that all of us speak honestly and freely in every opportunity. I think that's a really positive note uh, to wrap on, uh, Brendan. Thank you. This is the book, uh, Heretics Manifesto. I would urge anyone here who hasn't read it to get a copy and to read it. Thank you, Brendan, not just for the book, but for everything you do, because I think you uh, are one of the most eloquent and important critics of these things and have been for many years. And you're often a bit of a Cassandra. I think you often say uh, the things, the unsayable things before anyone else does and people catch up with you and you take a lot of flack for it. But I think all of the work you've done is really, really important. So thank you for that. Thanks, Andrew.